You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, on the phone with me now, now he's a native of Iowa, but it didn't used to be like that. Good buddy, John Mulligan. How you doing today, John? Hey, what's happening, Dan? You know, I have like, every time we get together, uh, we talk a little bit about your past as a police officer. And I want (laughs) to, and you always tell me some crazy stories about, about, about that. But before we get into what you did back in the day, I'll say, um, we have kind of traveled the same path for a short period of time. And that's kind of what, uh, how we became friends, but why don't you tell us where do you live and what do you currently do for a living? So I live in Southeast Iowa, actually in uh, a town called Farmington. Um, and I moved, like you mentioned, I moved from Kentucky. I was a police officer there and I'm currently the vice president of wicked tree gear. And then I also um, do a little photography and stuff like that. And, and uh, we started a little web show, um, Arrow Wild Company, and just kind of um, it's a digital diary, you know what I mean? Just sharing yeah. stories. But um, pay the bills from through the Wicked Tree Gear stuff. And that's uh, a lot of my background. Also, some people don't know, my degree is actually in horticulture. So I've been cutting trees a while and planting trees probably a little bit longer, but I've cut a few in my day as well. So trimming, being a professional tree trimmer, I bet you have some of the best looking shooting lanes in the entire country. (laughs) Well, what does it they always say? Like the plumber is always the guy that has like the broken toilet. Um, So you spend your whole life cutting everybody else's trees and pruning them. Sometimes uh, I don't know if they're, if they're uh, clean, but they're efficient. I'll put it that way. (laughs) Hey, and that's how you make your money, right? Being efficient. That's right. That's it. All right. So now every time we talk, whether we're in a car over the phone or, or, you know, when we used to do trade shows together and that kind of stuff, we, because back in the day, I used to work for Wicked as well, um, but you you would we'd sit there when it's slow, and you would tell me these these crazy ass stories about when you <laughs> when you were a police officer, and you weren't just a traffic cop, right? You you did some undercover work as. Yep. 
Okay. So tell me a crazy story about when you were an undercover cop. <laughs> um, so there was a, there was a time where we, we go uh, into a house and, and we're kicking in a door and, you know, prior to this, you know, we had a, a, a decent size unit. There was anywhere from 10 to 14 guys in the unit and, and it's, it's video surveillance. It's, um, counter surveillance and, and you're doing all, all this kind of stuff. And nonetheless, we had made a couple of drug buys into this house and we'd received a search warrant as this was a house that we were going to kick in. Well, we were running very, very short staff that day because we were actually kicking multiple doors in in multiple counties all around Northern Kentucky. So we went to go serve the search warrant. We only had like two guys, which is, you know, it's pretty sketchy and, you know, unsafe. So we called a local uh, unit uh, to come over and to, uh, to help us, you know, secure the residence and set up perimeter. So we, we all stack up, we've got our game plan. We have our ops plan all lined out. You know, if there's an emergency, if disaster happens, that kind of stuff, we stack up, we kick the door, we clear the residence, you know, we end up handcuffing some people and, and we found our suspects that we were going in after we hauled them out of there. The place is empty. So now we're kind of doing a final walkthrough and actually doing a search and doing photographs and everything, making sure there's nothing we miss. About that time, I hear somebody's gun go off. And I'm thinking, oh, crap, that's not, please don't be mine, you know. But you go in with your AR-15s and MP4s and everything else. One of the units that we had requested to come in and help us uh, do this search warrant, he had bumped uh, a trigger, didn't put his gun back on uh, back on safe. Well, fortunately, the gun was pointed down at the ground, but unfortunately, we realized that we we're on the third floor of this housing project. So the first thing everybody's thinking is, oh my gosh, who's underneath? Who's So we're downstairs, we're going through all the bottom levels, knocking on doors. We find this old lady, she had her feet up, and I feel so bad for her. She's watching like the Andy Griffith show with a big bullet hole right in her coffee table. <laughs> fortunately, nobody was hurt. And like I said, I mean, telling stories like that after the fact, it's almost embarrassing. But uh, it wasn't my gun, and I won't disclose um, the agency <laughs> whose gun that it was. But, you know, accidents happen. Um right. But that's one of the lighter stories. You know, some of the other things that happened, like I told you before, um, some of that stuff was just, it's just crazy. I mean, there's a whole nother life that people live um, that's so different than what you and I are accustomed to. You know, we right. get up every day, we go to do a job, we come home, see the family. If we have some free time, we try to, you know, dabble in our hobbies, whether it be hunting or photographs or something like that, or podcasts or blogs. But there's a whole other side, there's a whole other world out there that they wake up every day and their sole mission for that day is to rob, steal, you know, do drugs, sell drugs, acquire drugs. You know, it's just, it's nuts. Yeah. Um, and for several years, I got to kind of live that lifestyle uh, with a fake name and fake social security number, fake driver's license and fake apartment and the whole nine yards. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's you come home and you feel real normal, real right. fast. Right. So my question and my question is, we've had some guys who on the podcast, one guy worked for the military and he 
took inventory of weapons and he had uh, he was working with these gigantic bombs that could level city blocks. And uh, I would say at some point that is a stressful job. But how stressful is it? I mean, being undercover, faking who you are and having to deal with the scum of the earth where if they find out that you're an undercover cop, you're probably going to get shot. Yeah, and that was and that was the thing, you know. I think when I was younger, I got into the undercover stuff early in my career. Um, so whether it be, you know, I grew up watching like the original Twenty One Jump Street. You know what I mean? So yeah. I thought that was awesome and that was cool. And that's probably, I mean, that's the main thing that led me into police work in general. Um, right off the bat, was I wanted to do narcotics or I wanted to do some kind of a vice unit or something, and. Um, I was still in training and I popped a guy with like 312 pounds of marijuana and I was still in training and and they looked at me and they said, damn, like this guy might have some skill when it comes to dope work. So a position came up, just all kind of luck, you know, fell into place. I make this pop and then like a week later, a position opens up where they were needing another body in this, in this unit. And I'm like, me, 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 you know? So they put me into it. So I was still young and, and like I always say, still full of like piss and vinegar. You know what right, I mean? Right. So I did have one child at the time. My wife and I, we had our first child. And I guess, you know, when you're at that age, man, you do dumb stuff. Right. And I was like, yeah, I want to do it. So I started getting into the unit and I was doing stuff and I was going out all hours of the night, coming home and, and this kind of stuff. And then, you know, you have a second kid. And then you have a third kid right? and then you kind of start to look back on it and you're like, you know what? And my wife, she was even kind of leaning on me a little bit. And she's like, Hey, this 2 AM, 3 AM going out to buy a kilo of Coke or, you know, she's like, all right, that's, this is getting kind of sketchy, you know? And (laughs) uh, (laughs) so, and then, like I said, you look back on it now, look at it and I'm 38 and I can say, okay, that was awesome. And I had a blast doing it, but man, that was probably that was kind of dumb because right. you still live within the area that you're undercover. Yeah. So you kind of become like a recluse. Right. You only hang out at the house or if you do hang out, you have to leave and go someplace 45 minutes or an hour away because you don't want to take a chance of somebody seeing you. I mean, my biggest fear was that I was just, I was at a gas station pumping gas with my wife and kids in the car and some guy that I had just put in prison for six years of his life is now recently released. And he's like, Hey, that looks like the SOB that took away my livelihood, you know, and to put me in prison. So, you know, you, you start to think about that. And those are the things that you don't think about initially. Um, Fortunately, the unit that I was in, we had some pretty airtight cases and these guys usually went away for a long, 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 long time, much longer than six years. But, um, and, and that was, again, that kind of comes, full circle with me, um, getting out of that unit and getting out of that career, um, and really wanting to move away from the area. Cause it didn't matter what you did. Like right. if I went to that gas station to pump gas, I'm like, you know what? Six years ago, um, somebody got shot here or I worked a crime scene here, or I worked a burglary or a rape or, you know what I mean? And it's right. just, those were things that, I just, I needed to get away from all that and wanted to get away from the area and kind of get a fresh start and kind of get a new set of eyes on things on life. 
Right. And you know, that, like you said, that whole time you were working a, a landscaping job too. And, uh-huh. and you've, you've always hunted and kind of, kind of pivoting here a second. You've always hunted, but not necessarily a bow hunter. When did you, no. when did you, when did you start hunting at what age? And then when, when did that transition into bow hunting? So, um, it's funny, you know, I grew up in central Kentucky, very rural area. The, uh, our, my parents, uh, farm street address actually is a rural route number. And, but it's all horses and cattle, all pasture. So any, any killable ground is fescue, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, or it's, or it's tobacco. Uh, there wasn't a lot of trees. So you, know, you talk to these guys are like, I remember once. I hunted four years in a row and I finally saw my first deer. I never saw a white-tailed deer on the hoof through my first 18 years of life. Okay. So um, I got into hunting really late and it was after I moved to Northern Kentucky. Um, and actually I did a short film uh, called Work More Hours where I kind of talk about this story. But one of my cop buddies, uh, still a really good close friend of mine, uh, Jason says, he's like, dude, let's get into deer hunting. And I'm like, that seems pretty tough, man. I've never <laughs> even seen a deer before in my life. You know what I mean? Like, and he goes, no, there's a lot of deer here in Northern Kentucky, especially around with these river bottoms. So, you know, like a lot of guys, um, I got into hunting. I, I think I went to Walmart and I got my first set of camo and I bought a rifle there and a scope and everything, you know, right there. And, and I think I was, I was probably 22, maybe 23, uh, I was probably 23 years old um, before I ever bought my first hunting license. Now, I'm not saying we hadn't shot coyotes and things like that before around the farm, but I had never chased whitetail deer. And so my first couple of years, I just rifle hunted and um, I shot, you know, a couple of does and I actually harvested my first buck in 2006. And even after I shot that deer, I remember walking up to the deer and I thought, man, that really wasn't that hard. I mean, it was hard to get on the deer, but it wasn't hard to harvest the deer, you know, with the rifle. So I knew that I really, really enjoyed the sport of trying to find them and chase them. I just needed something more challenging to harvest them with. So one of my buddies has said, you ought to try bow hunting. And I'm like, hmm, all right. So I, I bought a, I bought a Matthews, uh, FX, I think it was FX or LX. I can't remember, I can't remember which, but anyways, I bought my first bow. Um, and I think that whole first season, every time I went to stand up or reach for my bow, um, I got, I kept getting busted. So then I started just sitting with the bow in my lap. <laughs> I wouldn't even hang it up. You know what I mean? Cause I was like, this is too hard to even reach for a bow. But I finally, finally was able to get a shot off on a deer. And man, from that moment on, I was like, I am hooked. Right. I love bow hunting. So how many years now have you been bow hunting, dedicated to bow hunting? Dedicated to bow hunting. Um, I guess it's been 10 years. 10 years. Okay. 10 years, just bow hunting. Yep. All right. Now. Fast forwarding a little bit, um, uh-huh. when when did you start to become successful? 
uh, what, what some of us, I know the, uh, success comes in all shapes and sizes, you know, whether you're the kind oh, of guy sure, sure. who, who likes to sit in the tree stand and just enjoy nature, that's a successful season, or you're the guy who, you know, starts to harvest what he's after. Um, from a, from a harvest standpoint, when did you start becoming successful? Um, let's see. 20, 2010, um, I shot what to me was a giant buck, you know, it was probably 130 inch Kentucky deer. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is awesome. We knew that that deer was there. We didn't have any trail camera pictures, but we had actually seen the deer before. And, you know, I hung a tree stand in the area that I had seen him and I was able to capitalize on him uh, during the rut and shoot that deer. And then, you know, fast forward a couple more years, um, into 2013, 2013 was the first year that I, I went crazy. You know, um, I, I, I'm walking into the woods with a pile of SD cards and a pile of batteries and, and I'm running trail cameras everywhere. That's when I think that's when I, uh, I would say I came, became successful with technology and, had really started to learn more and appreciated a lot more. And that's, that's like the year that everything really started to kind of come together. And, um, I had a buck that I called Rondo that I, I targeted in 2013. And, um, he actually, to this day is still, it's, it's my biggest buck to date. And I shot that buck, um, third day of the season, which in Kentucky, it starts so soon. So, you know, you got a, a skinny little deer with, uh, sometimes velvet, but, you know, still showing guard hair and everything like that. But, um, so, you know, like I said, a lot of, a lot of guys, man, you know, I still have a ton of learned about bow hunting cause I got into it so late, but you know, I'm that type of guy that if I want to get into something, I just immerse myself in it. And I listen right. to anything, any information guys like you or Kenyon. And, and so there's so many guys that I've got at my disposal that I can call and ask questions and, right. and get tips and tricks off of. So, okay. So when did we meet? 2000, was it 2013? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Yeah. yeah it was, okay. Yeah. 2013. So that, that was your, that was your first year, um, or after, you know, getting hardcore, I'll, I'll, I'll put it to a term yeah. hardcore. Mm-hmm. And then you were successful that year. Um, now mm-hmm. you were successful in 2014 and 15 too. I forget. Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. And okay. Yep. So then something happened, right? So then you decided to take a different job, put uh, law enforcement to the side and move, pack up and move the entire family to Iowa. Why don't you elaborate a little bit about that transition, not only from an employment standpoint, but from, Mm -hmm. you know, the hunting standpoint as well and why you decided, Hey, maybe I want to move my family to Iowa. Sure. You know, having I went three years in Kentucky of of killing you know my hit list deer and um didn't feel like I was the ultimate hunter by any means but I had picked out three deer harvested those three deer that I wanted and um and there's ton of big deer in Kentucky but it's tough it's really really tough I knew that there were certain parts of the Midwest um, that held 
the type of deer, the type of class of deer that I wanted to pursue. And Iowa and Kansas were two states that always stood out to me. And with Iowa doing the preference points, I knew that going to Iowa once every four years um, as a non-resident was just not going to work for me, you know? Right. And so I knew somehow, some way I wanted to get to Iowa and I wanted to be a resident of Iowa so I could hunt, um, live there, you know, and, yeah. and study those deer, you know, 12 months a year. And now, when, uh, one second, one second, when, when mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, the caliber that you wanted to chase, not being in Kentucky, what were you looking for before you ultimately chose Iowa as your new home? I, I was looking for an older class of mature deer. Um, you know, in anybody listening to this, if they're from Kentucky, a lot of guys will say, well, you know, my buddy killed a 190 in Kentucky. And Kentucky does produce big deer, but by far, on average, a three-year-old deer is like a grandpa in Kentucky. That's just the way it is, you know? And I didn't have uh, the time or the money to try to obtain leases all over the state and travel all over the state and manage ground and, and check trail cameras and hunt and this kind of stuff, you know? it's really, really tough. I mean, Kentucky is one of those areas where I was hunting that sometimes I would get my wife to drop me off or I would park my truck down the road because if somebody sees your truck, they come knocking on the farmer's door and they're like, Hey, whatever he's paying you for the lease, I'll double it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you run into those kind of situations. So, and I would say there's definitely more hunters. I think what did, was it QDMA that did the report uh, deer hunters per square mile. It seemed like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Kentucky were in the top three. Okay. And so I wanted to get into an area that was a little more rural where there was more deer than humans, basically. Yeah. And coming to, <laughs> now also, uh, you know, bring that into my past life and, and employment history. I'm not a big fan of humans in general. So, <laughs> I'm, I am not a people person. <laughs> I'm not. I'm really not. And it's funny because I've always done sales in some way, shape, or form. But right. um, I just don't like people that much. And I, I really wanted to get away. Um, so, like I said, Iowa and Kansas were always two two places that I I thought would you know would help me in in pursuing you know my my whitetail and my hunting goals. Um. Wicked Tree Gear was presented with an opportunity to sell the company, and so uh, we decided to uh, sell sell controlling interest in the company. And what that allowed me to do is to solely work uh, for Wicked, and I could leave my policing job, which made my mom happy, it made my dad happy, it made my wife happy, right. uh, and in some degree, it made me happy. I was getting a little burnout. But I was only four years shy of full pension. And it's amazing looking back on it. You know, now it would only be three years from now. But, uh, man, I, it's kind of funny. You know, I, I needed to make that move. I needed it. It was something I wanted to do. And I didn't jeopardize my family and uproot my whole family just so John could go chase deer. Right. There's a lot more that came into it. You know what I mean? Right. It was for the health of me. It was for the health of the family. Um, 
And I grew up in the country and, and, you know, I tease my kids all the time. I'm like, have you ever had to get up and go feed cattle before you went to school? No. Where's my Wii or where's my PlayStation, you know? So there was things that moving out into the country that, that I wanted to do with the family and stuff like that. So, um, the opportunity presented itself and I jumped on it and it gave me a chance to move and live where I want to live. Um, so I started looking at Iowa, Southeast Iowa, obviously guys like yourself and other people that I knew in Iowa, you know, had a lot of success and, and I liked the terrain and the topography in the area that I picked in Southeast Iowa is very, it's ironically, it's really similar to the type of hunting uh, that I was accustomed to in Kentucky. You know, I'm down here by the river, so it's a lot more rolling terrain. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a little different. It's, it's definitely different. Man, since I've been out here throwing up trail cameras, um, right off the bat, I'm like, this is why I came here. Right. Because so, there's just a, there's a, there's a class of deer that's different. Right. So... And, and we'll get into this this particular season here in a second, but I want to talk about the overall, like the differences, the immediate differences that you noticed instantly um, on the move from the the move from as far as deer hunting was concerned, uh, the move from uh, Kentucky to Iowa, and then you know as this season has now progressed and it's uh, almost over, talk about the the subtle differences as well. Sure. Um, so I was fortunate enough to pick up, uh, pick up some lease ground while I was here as well. I bought a little bit of land, um, personally and didn't want to have all my eggs in one basket, you know, like anybody else. And, and, um, I wish I could have afforded 500 acres, but I didn't. So I picked up a little bit of lease ground, um, close, fairly close to me. And, um, some of the properties, you know, there's row crops. I have never hunted row crops before. Now, coming into Iowa, I know that there's there's a ton of corn and there's beans everywhere. I mean, that's why these deer do so well. Um, but I personally had never hunted row crops. Like I said, it was all fast stuff, fescue and timber. That's the only kind of hunting I had done. And most of it was just hard, you know, big woods. You know, I think what a lot of us call, refer to big woods hunting. And so that's what I had was uh, was accustomed to so that was one of the big changes uh, the first thing that i saw is whoa okay how are these deer going to transition from this timber to this timber are they going to cut across this field are they going to go around this field and um so i started putting out trail cameras and of course i started moving trail cameras very quickly too i totally underestimated um how long it was going to take me to really start to figure out the travel patterns of these deer. And, um, I, I mean, like I said, I've never hunted those type of big road crop things before. And, um, and then of course, and you had mentioned this to me before you said, wait till the big switch happens. And I'm like, the switch, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, when the farmer comes and he combines everything and I'm like, so everything that I thought I knew, now is all reset and it's all different, you know? So there's a big change and a big shift. And now the deer are moving, they're moving differently than they did before. They can't hide in that corn. Now they're having to walk around the field. And, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, man, I just all season long, I felt like a dog chasing his tail. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I thought, man, I here, I, I really thought I was starting to figure this whitetail stuff out. And, 
and I feel like I'm lost. You know, I feel like I'm starting from, you know, from ground zero again. But um, so the row crop is the biggest change. Um, some of the subtle changes is um, the, the the people. You know, the, the, the other hunters in the area, a lot more people are more helpful. And they were, um, guys were, you know, I'd see a guy at a gas station and let's say I had a, a lone wolf shirt on and he goes, Oh, you bow hunt? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you got anything good showing up on camera? Well, Kentucky, you say, hell no, I've got a bunch of spikes. That's all I got. You know, what, what do you got? No, this guy's sitting here, never met him before in my life. Phone comes out and he's showing you all his trail camera pictures and the address of the property in which he hunts. <laughs> So that's, that's totally different from what I'm used to. I mean, in Kentucky, you don't say nothing, you know, you don't tell anybody about nothing. Um, so it's, it's been different. Well, and I want to make one thing clear here. Now you say you got access to a lease, um, Mm -hmm. here in Iowa, but it's not what a majority, I mean, it's not what I consider a lease. I consider it. You got permission to hunt on a piece of property because, because you weren't, you were hunting on what I would consider an active farm. Like the, the, the sure. farmer wasn't going to stop what he was doing because it was bow hunting season. Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess, yeah. Lease is not the correct term. It's, um, I was given exclusive hunting rights, but, um, he's still him and his farm hands and children. They're still on the property every day, farming it, uh, doing whatever they need to do, moving cattle in and around, moving tractors in and around. Um, you know, I know one day I went to go hunt and there was a combine parked 10 yards from my tree stand. So, <laughs> I mean, it is what it is, you know? Right. And, uh, um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, so I, you know, those were, I had, I had, to, de- I had to deal with those kind of issues too. Um, but you know, I'm on really good terms with him. I can always shoot him a text message and say, Hey, when do you, you know, when do you think you're going to be combining again? When do you think you're going to move that, uh, that transfer wagon, you know what I mean? Away yeah. from my tree stand. Um, yeah. So he definitely wasn't doing anything differently because I was there. You know, that's right. for, that's for sure. Right. Um, so and again, it's funny because these guys are like, you're putting in a lot of time and effort just for a deer. Right. I mean, it's just a deer. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of funny. When I went out in uh, to Nebraska, um, I, got some, uh-huh. I got some family that has some land out there. And I told uh, he, uh, I show up and he goes, well, what kind of rifle are you going to use? And I'm just like, uh, I'm going to use my bow. And he started laughing at me like I was some kind of crazy person, you know, like you're going to try to shoot a deer out here, you know, at, at 20 yards, 30 yards. I'm like, yeah, that's the goal anyway. And he's like, you should just sit. He's like, you should just sit in your truck and wait for him to come to the crop circles and shoot him out of your truck. You don't even have to get out. Uh, (laughs) Like, well, buddy, that just tells you the difference, uh, between, uh, when you were born in 1927 and I was uh, and, and today, so <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So, and, um, so yeah, and and I got some of that too. Um, yeah, you know, from some of the locals down here, they're like, you only hunt with a bow. I'm like, yeah, yeah. 
And they're like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about, all right, you, you said bye-bye. You didn't say bye-bye a hundred percent. Cause you still went back and, and did some hunting in Kentucky, yeah. but you know, yeah. yep. you moved to Iowa, you got, you got your, you had your house w- with uh, some property on it on, on uh, uh-huh. a piece of property with your house on it. And then down the road, you know, from you, you had, uh, um, you had the, the permission, the ground with, that you had uh-huh. permission to, what was, yep. what was the very first thing that you did when you, you got down there, the papers were signed and, and now, and now you are a resident of Iowa. Um, I called a couple people, I think you included, and asked how long I have to be a resident before I can get my hunting license. <laughs> uh, found out it was 90 days. Um, so, um, no, the very first thing I did is um, we were actually in the middle of unloading boxes. And I think my wife was like yelling for me. And she's like, you know, where, where in the heck did he go? And I just started walking around the fields. Yeah. Started walking the property. And I found, uh, I found a shed, uh, my second day I was here, like 10 yards from the back of the house. And it kind of reminds me of that like comedy bit, uh, with that guy, uh, Ron White. I'm like, it's going to be a good day, Tater. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. I'm like, this is awesome. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, that was the first thing I started, uh, putting some trail cameras up immediately on my property and started scouting some ground, um, didn't waste any time. Had a buddy of mine, Andy Wikers up in Waterloo, uh, from campfire stories. He, he came down with a bobcat and a tree puller and we started cutting in some trails and pulling some trees and opening up some ground for some food plots. Um, my property is not really, really big and it's going to be tough to, I could probably get bucks to, you know, daytime bed. Um, but I'm not going to have big holding sanctuary bedding areas on my property. So for me, my best effort is, um, just try to create some food, you know, right. and try to catch them in passing, coming there to eat, you know, either mornings or evenings. But, um, so we started on that right away and, um, um, started looking at, uh, maps and looking up and down the roads, looking at topos and seeing what, where other property was that I would be interested in hunting. I started looking for all the hourglass, you know, topo lines on maps and, and uh, a mutual friend of ours, um, Ben Harshin from Huntera, he made me a couple of maps, and and he was a big asset too, uh, with kind of scouting this area because he has made some other maps for some of the public ground around here. So I was already kind of looking at the public ground, um, where which is again so funny because if you say public ground in Kentucky, that means two rabbits, maybe a three-legged squirrel, and maybe a duck. <laughs> That's the best you're going to find on public ground in Kentucky. But, and then about 4,000 hunters hunting 20 mile or 20 acres, you know? So, um, that's a lot of hunters. There is, that's a lot of hunters. And, um, but you know, in Iowa, the public ground is, dude, it's on fire. Yeah. I mean, it's totally overlooked. It, it just, it blew me away. Um, so I started spending some time on some of the public pieces and stuff like that. And then I kind of fell on to, um, I fell, fell on to the hunting permission down the road. And, and then I'm like, okay, I'm set. You know, I, I've got probably more ground 
to study and, and try to manage um, than what I even know what to do with right now. I'm running out of trail cameras. Um, but that was the trail cameras and, and foot scouting was the first thing I knew I had to do because by the time we got here, the whole family got here. I mean, it was almost June 1st. Yeah. Um, so I knew I was a little bit behind the eight ball. And you know when you get all those trees that are all leased out, you can't see into the woods. So I didn't have that shed season behind me. Um, I didn't have that winter where I could find winter beds and snow and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I was to some degree at a little bit of a disadvantage, you know, um, obviously being new to the area, but not having some of, and I think, I think, uh, winter beds and shed hunting, there's so much information you can learn from that. And, um, not having that on this property that these are these properties that hurt me a ton. It really did. All right. So you got trail cameras out soaking, right? You, Mm -hmm. you got, you got some, uh, you got access to some property, you scouted some public that, you know, you were thinking about, uh, thinking about hunting if, uh, your other property didn't produce. Let's talk about the very first time you, I guess before I'm going to ask you a, sh- a short answer question, what was your expect yep. before you checked trail cameras the, for the first time, yeah. what was your expectation about your first season in Iowa? Well, like everybody says in Iowa, there's 580 inch bucks behind every tree, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, um, I say this joking and I say it kind of half serious. I mean, I, I had this storybook thing going on, you know, in my head that my first season in Iowa, I was going to be sitting in a tree stand and I was going to see booners just gallantly running through the fields and through the timber and chasing does and you know um but i also knew that i'm an unlucky person and in general in life so (laughs) it was going to take some time and it was going to take some some effort and more than just luck you know but um no i i mean i hoped when i went to go check cameras i hoped to find you know uh at least a buck that was worthy of chasing you know you know a, a a respectable shooter, mature deer. A buck um, that you were, you moved to Iowa for, right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was definitely hoping to not get a bunch of trail camera pictures of a bunch of Larry's. Right. Um, you know, that would be, Ooh, that would have been rough to swallow after all the moving expenses. I mean, and let's, and I'll put this out there when I, to, to make this move happen, Dan, and I don't know if I even went to the full extent that I've even told you this before, I cashed in every bit of my retirement. Yeah. I mean, I went chips all in to be able to come out here. Um, so yeah, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was hopeful that I was going to have some decent gear on trail camera. That's for sure. Right. So you had, you know, you had this whimsical expectation of, you know, your hunting season. And I mean, you, <laughs> I, I know you, I know you a little bit. So, you, you know, I, there was, there was probably a hint of reality in there as well, you know, knowing that y- you're not really sure what you're going to see, but sure. af- after the first round of trail camera checks, did yeah. your expectation change at all? Did you start to get excited? Were you, were you unhappy with that first poll? Why don't you talk to us about that? 
the first the first card pool um i was a little disappointed uh the first card pools i had maybe four or five cameras out and most of them were just on my private ground here right and um and i, I mean i you know sometimes it, it is kind of hard to tell what those bucks are going to become right um i didn't have any that were right out of the gate just like oh my gosh you know that's a mega giant um, but I had a couple of decent velvet bucks that I'm like, eh, you know, you have to keep an eye on them. Um, and then the second card pool, that's when I got trail cameras on other properties. Okay. And when I pulled that card pool, then that's when I, I realized, I said, and I, I remember show, pulling the trail camera picture up and I, I brought my wife over and I said, look, that's why I wanted to come to Iowa <laughs> and I can't even repeat the word uh, or the series of words that she said <laughs> when she saw it, but she's just like, Oh my God, you know, right. she's like, right. we don't have beer like that in Kentucky. And I go, no, we don't. Nope. Okay. So now, now you, you saw this, you know, these big bucks start showing up on trail camera. It was the summer, sure. you know, how many, how many stands did you set up that summer? All, okay. I'll tell you what, how many stands did you set up that summer to prepare for the 2016 bow season? And talk to us a little bit about how many food plots you planted as well. Okay. Um, the summer prep work. I did. Yep. I did seven uh, seven tree stands and those were all double sets, you know, cameraman and hunter. And then I did, uh, I had another two full sets that I left in the garage just for run gun stuff. Um, that, you know, some people have one set for run and gun. Uh, my thing is always, it always happens where you do a run and gun set and it may not have produced, but you don't want to tear it down. <laughs> so, right. I like having two sets for running gun. Um, and then I ended up doing three food plots just on my property. Uh, I did about three quarters of an acre of standing corn. I did about a half acre of uh, turnips and uh, radishes. And then I did a small little quarter acre kill plot right behind the house. And it's all clover and chicory. Um, and I can actually sit in the house and look out the back window and watch deer. Now, do I th did I think that I was going to shoot a booner, you know, off the back deck of the house? No, probably not. But it, it's kind of cool just to be in your house and looking out the window and see deer, you know? Right, right. Now, you, you had planted some food plots before in Kentucky too, right? Yeah, yeah. We had, you know, a lot of the property that I had access to in Kentucky, um, permission to hunt it is, is loosely. I mean, I never was trespassing, but it was kind of like, yeah, I don't mind if you hunt it, but you already knew you didn't want to ask permission to food plot it. You know what I mean? Right. And right. Um, so there was a couple. There, I did have one lease in Kentucky that me and my good buddy Mike Riddle, we were able to put in a couple acres of beans. Um, and I've done some small plots here and there, but, a, you know, a few kill plots is really the most that I'd ever done. Uh, this was the first year that I brought in dozers and bobcats and opened up ground for food plots. And, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but again, this is the first, I moved from a subdivision, 
So yeah. other than my parents' farm, um, this is the first time I've lived on a, a larger piece of ground, you know, that was mine. Right. All right. So the summer starts to progress, you know, you're, you're doing mm-hmm. your, you're doing your summer work, your food plots and stuff. Are, are the bucks that you've noticed on that second card pull continuing to, to stick around or are they coming in and out? Are they consistent? Are they mm-hmm. like one hitter quitters where they're, you know, I got one, yeah. one series of pictures and then I haven't seen them again. Why don't you explain that? Um, no, they, they stuck around and every card pull, there was a new buck. Now he may not be a shooter, but if you see a 145 inch three-year-old, you're like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? It gets you excited because you're like, I got something to look forward to from the year after and the year after that. And the year after that, um, something I was unaware of EHD, uh, really hit this area, uh, where I'm at three years ago, really, really bad. And it wiped out a lot of stuff. And, and, you know, even our parents are the glory days, you know, and, and people around here local, they were always going, ah, the deer numbers will never be what they once were. You know, you used to be able to go see 200 inches every day. Um, but that EHD, it sounds like it really did wipe out a lot of deer here, but I was, every time I did a card pull, Dan, I was getting three-year-olds, four-year-olds. Um, I had one six-year-old and that was confirmed from a previous hunter that had hunted that ground he gave me his trail camera pictures from two years ago. And, um, so there was two deer that were, that were six year olds and the rest were all threes and fours. Um, but I mean, at one time there was probably 12 different bucks that were showing up really regular that were one forty class and up. Okay. Um, so, so I, I was getting fired up, you know? Right. So as, as this, as this inaugural season in Iowa, you know, October 1st is getting closer and closer and closer and all these deer are starting to show up. What did you tell yourself? You know, obviously the six-year-olds, the big boys, they were going to get, they were, they were on the hit list, but what kind of caliber of deer for you this first year in Iowa was going to, to be on your hit list? to make the hit list, you know, and I, and I, Dan, you know, I went back and forth because I kept telling myself, don't shoot anything unless it's one of these big bucks. I mean, you've got them on camera you know that they're here. So you might as well pass on this. If you have a 150 inch four-year-old come by, you should probably let him, let him go. And then I kind of started thinking about it in the back of my head is I said, wait a second, you know, don't fall into this. I can only shoot a deer if he's 180 inches. You know what I mean? Yeah. You can only shoot a deer if he's eight years old and you've got 12 and a half years of sheds of him. You like that? So, <laughs> um, you know, I didn't want to fall into that situation right, either. Right. Now, believe me, I love a good storyline and I love the pursuit of the animal um, but I didn't want to place crazy high expectations on myself. Okay. So I went into opening day and just said, you know what? I'm not making any decisions. I'm going to go hunt. If I see a four-year-old buck and he's 155 inches and he comes in putting on a show or I'm able to grunt him in or 
or he chases a doe through or whatever, and he makes for a good, he gets that heart pumping and it makes me want to reach for my bow. Then by God, I'm going to reach my bow and I'm going to shoot him, you know? So that's kind of how I went into the season. Now, unfortunately, um, I had all of my big deer showing up really consistently through the second and the third of October. Um, but the pictures were all 30 minutes before daylight and 30 minutes after daylight. So I didn't have, I still wasn't getting any daytime pictures of any of my bucks at all. They were all nighttime photos all through summer, all through September and even into October. And then it just kept, uh, you know, it kept staying so warm in October. And I knew that that was probably keeping the deer moving more in the evening hours. Uh, I mean, heck there was one day it was like four degrees, 85 degrees or something, you know, in October. And, um, so after shortly after the first week of the season, um, dude, my deer, my buck activity just shut down. All I was seeing was little forkers and little spikes and, you know, one and two year olds is all I was seeing. I wasn't getting trail camera pictures of any of my big bucks. Um, so reality started to sit in a little bit, you know, I went into the season going, I'm going to shoot a booner. I'm going to shoot a booner, you know? (laughs) So then I'm like, was there something that triggered that you mentioned earlier in the, in our conversation about the, the switch, right? The crops come out. Did, did that crop, did that correlate with what you were seeing on trail camera? Definitely. I mean, right at October 1st is when my farmer uh, started combining his corn. So in the evenings there, you know, um, you're in the tree stand, it's getting past shooting light and you're like, okay, it's time to climb down. I like to always sit for an additional 15 to 20 minutes and make sure it's good and dark, you know, before I climb down. And there would be nights where I would be in the tree stand getting ready to climb down and I could just see silhouettes of deer all in that cut corn where he had combined that morning. They were coming in there and picking up their kernel, you know, kernels and stuff that were down on the ground. And I'm just like, oh, man. So there was nights that, I mean, dude, I wasn't coming home till like 930 at night. I'd get trapped in the tree stand, you know, waiting for those deer to clear out of the area. Um, so, yeah. The, the, the numbers, corn. the numbers were there, right. But, but not the, the buck, the big bucks that you were, you were wanting to stick around, you know, scrub bucks and does they were there, but yep. the big boys, oh, yeah. they, they, they shut off. Right. Yep. Yep. Okay. They just shut off altogether. And, and, you know, early season, I was trying to be very careful I didn't want to, you know, here it is my first season in Iowa. I don't want to blow out a bunch of my tree stands. I'm not having to compete with pressure like I did in Kentucky. So I knew that I could be a little more picky and make sure I had a good wind. But still yet, I was only hunting field edges, places that I could get in and out of really easy without disturbing a lot of stuff. And I still think that that was the right move to make. Um, I wasn't going into any timber spots, you know, I was still trying to hang around that cut corn and, and kind of rolling the dice there. I didn't want to booger up any good spots. So kind of like observation Um, stands. Correct. There were, there were all places that I could see, you know, four or 500 yards through, you know, down, down the field and stuff like that. Um, I thought that was going to be my best plan and, you know, and 
But like I said, these big bucks were not showing up on trail cameras anymore. Okay. So you, I started you think moving the main cameras. Reason- you, you think the main reason is because of the crop harvest had something to do with that? I mean, that's the one thing that changed. Okay. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing that changed. So so it took me a couple of weeks to kind of put it all together and say, well, the only thing that changed was the crops came out. Oh, I should probably start moving my cameras. So I started moving my cameras around and trying to find corridors. And again, Topo maps are huge and they're, they're a huge asset, but they, they don't, they can't replace foot, you know, foot patrol as well, you know? So being that I picked up the property so late and I, and I didn't want to go into the timber and disturb stuff. So, um, I was like always a couple of weeks behind. It seemed like I was so nervous to go into some of these places and, and booger them up. But I finally, uh, said, you know what? I, I got to do it. If I bump them, I bump them, but you know, I, it's time to, it's time to get in the timber and, and figure out something. So I started moving cameras around as the season progressed. And finally I started getting some of the bigger deer back on trail camera coming through some of these travel corridors. Okay. So, so they, they stayed away from the field edges a little bit. Now they're, you, mm-hmm. you, you kind of found, not necessarily a pattern, but you found a, where they're moving, right? Sure. So mm-hmm. with that, with that data, with, with that trail camera, uh, information, did, did that, uh, did that give you enough Intel or information to say, okay, well, I, I need to stop hunting field edges and get into the timber. Did you make a strategy change or, I mean, it's still October at this point. So, mm-hmm. I mean, were you, were you, a, were you hunting a lot because it was your, I know you mentioned you were, you know, you didn't want to go in and booger up your stands because, you know, Hey, it's my first year in Iowa. I, I have to be careful. Or did sure. you, or did you kind of let the, the myth of Iowa, the myth of the big booner keep you hunting early season? And did do you feel at all? Maybe pressure was, kind of like your pressure had something to do with that as well. For sure. For sure. Um, what I, because I didn't know the property, um, as much as like I know it now, um, the the last three weeks I learned, I learned more about this property in the last three weeks. Um, I got those final pieces of the puzzle that, you know, made a painted a clear picture for me, but what I didn't know in October was really screwing me up. Um, even though I didn't think that I was putting a lot of pressure on, I was putting a ton of pressure on that property. And, um, that's, that's a mistake that I made. Like I said, here I am thinking I'm being gentle, but I was actually being counterproductive. What was that? What was that counterproduction? Was it the stand location itself? Was it the access to get to the stand? Access, access, totally, totally access. Okay. So describe that. So basically this property, the way it lays out is you have your row crops in the dead center and then you have timber on the outside. Okay. So for me to go anywhere, either a, I have to walk all the way around the property through the timber, which who knows what I'm blowing out, what bedding areas I'm having to cross to do that. And with the dry, crunchy leaves and everything else, you know, that we're starting to fall. That was awful. 
the quietest way is to walk right through the gut of the property. So anything that's on those field edges um, that's hanging out 20, 30, 40, 60 yards in the timber, they can see you coming from a mile away. And I literally mean like a mile away. Yeah. So that, that was tough, like I said, but sometimes you almost have to go for it. Yeah. And, you know, people say, well, you can't kill them from the couch. And, right. Uh, right. So I needed just to get out there. I thought, you know what? I just got to get out there. I got to see what I can see. And hopefully I can see some movement, even if it's moving on the other side of the property. That tells me something. And, and I let my cameras do as much work for me as I could. Right. But, you know, you know how the deal is with, with cameras. I love them to death. And, and it, it's, a, it's a, one of the biggest game changers for bow hunters, you know, in the, in the last 20 years. But a trail camera takes a picture of a buck. But what if that buck walks behind the camera? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you could think that you've got a bad camera location, but that deer walked five feet on the other side of the camera and you never got a picture of him. So uh, there is something to be said of just being out there, you know, right. and seeing it for yourself. But so, you know, I did a lot of damage, I think. Um, and then then I, I backed out altogether. And I just said, you know what? I, it's time to give that property a break. And I'm going to let the weather cool down. It's just too hot. Deer aren't moving as much. And then you've got the October lull, you know, that everybody talks about. And, it's a myth. And it's a myth. It's a myth. <laughs> it's a myth. And, and I and I honestly don't believe in the October lull. I think the October lull is uh, hunters um, create the lull, and I think weather can create the lull. You know what I mean? So, but nonetheless, I kind of pulled out a little bit. And then I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for the weather to get right. And then I kind of told myself about, well, the rut's going to happen no matter what. Right. Even if it's 85 degrees, the deer aren't just going to say, you know what, it's too hot to breed this season. We're going to take this year off. Right. So right. I knew that the rut eventually was going to have to happen. Um, and I do think that that is that, that time of the year where you can kind of be aggressive the fact that I had not learned this property as well as I wanted to, um, I could kind of let that be not be an excuse, but I could say, well, now it's time to go learn it some more. Right. And, and I might be able to get away with it, you know, and get lucky. Uh, so I got back out after there again, um, through the first part of the rut and, um, went back to those travel corridors. And then all of a sudden it's like something, something switched, man. Um, I started getting a lot more traffic. I probably had about 25, 30% of my big bucks starting to travel through some of these travel corridors. And it was, was that during daylight? During daylight. Yep. Okay. Four, three thirty, four o'clock PM kind of stuff. And one of, one of my two, uh, big hit list deer, he comes in, I do a run and gun set into a travel corridor and me and the camera guy, we got up in the tree that day. This was, um, let's see a week before black Friday. Okay. And <clears throat> he comes in cruising just, just like textbook, you know, the way a big buck would be cruising, you know, midday, mid afternoon, just cruising around looking for some does I had the wind in my favor. He comes in to 60 yards and I've looked at enough trail camera pictures and, 
and been around buddies and scored deer and and I'm looking at this deer and I'm going, man, he's probably mid seventies. He's got to be mid seventies and he's a six year old deer. I thought, oh, he's just a beauty. Did so you I've have trail camera a, pictures of him before previously? Oh yeah, 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 okay. hundreds, okay. hundreds of this deer. And um, so is a deer. I actually I called I called this deer. I called him Wade Garrett. One of my favorite characters from one of the best movies of all time, by the way. Um, So he comes in, he's like 60 yards. And, you know, dude, I've been in situations where I've had people trying to shoot me or I'm going to shoot somebody. And I've been in high stress situations. This deer got me a little rattled, you know, it's the biggest Mm -hmm. whitetail I've ever seen in my life. And he's, he's moving towards me at 60 yards away, just cruising. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. In my head, I'm telling myself, he gets kind of boogered up and he kind of just stalls up. He's not throwing his nose in the air. His body language just says he's just kind of chilling, taking his time. Because I was a little rattled, I didn't, I think maybe a grunt might have been the call to make or no call at all. Instead, um, being that it was that phase in the rut, if he's out cruising, if he felt challenged, that might provoke him to come on in and check it out or come in, you know, ticked off, ready for a fight. So I snort weeds at him. That was not the right call to make at all. (laughs) (laughs) He, he throws his tail in the air and he bounds off about 30 yards, but then his tail goes back down and he just walks off slowly the way he came in. And I thought, you know what? I just boogered that up. And then I kind of tell myself, well, maybe I didn't. Maybe, you know, maybe I did. Maybe I'll give him a couple of days and I might be able to pick him up again. I never got another trail camera picture of that, of that deer the rest of the year. Um, fast forward a little bit. Uh, we get into final, uh, or we get, we get into shotgun season. So now I can't hunt at all. And I'll be honest, I'm looking at my season and I'm going, man, I have just struggled. I've struggled. I've struggled. I can't figure this property out. Why, you know, is there, what am I doing wrong? Um, my big bucks aren't really showing up. Only a couple of them have come back to the property, uh, that they, what I would consider their summer range, you know, their summer patterns. I've only had a couple of those deer come back. And then, you know, you start thinking, well, how many of them got shot during shotgun season? And, Am I going to see anything else? And we, we get back into the second archery season and I'm back out there and, um, I'm actually in the same travel corridor and I get a text message and it's, uh, a text message and a picture telling me that the neighbor had killed Wade Garrett. Okay. And I'm like, Oh, great. You know what, (laughs) what else can go wrong? So, I mean, the listeners probably didn't get that you grind. I mean, you grinded out up until shotgun season hit. You were in the tree stand almost every single day. For, um, you know, yeah, during the I rut, mean, right? Sure. When sure, it started yeah, getting I, good. Yep, I took some vacation time, and and even days that I didn't take vacation, I would get out there um, and get into the tree stand at least hunt the morning. Or then I would, or I would try to hunt, you know, that last hour and a half or two hours of daylight. Um, but man, I was grinding it out. No doubt about it. 
Now, um, were you seeing does still? Yeah, I mean, I was seeing some does, um, but I'll be honest, man. There was there was days there. There was a lot of days where I wasn't seeing much at all. Okay, and um, very much what I would call like a trickle rut. I mean, I saw some early chasing, you know, in November, and then I saw some chasing still yet in middle of November, and then I saw a little bit of following and cruising, you know, getting towards the end of uh, the last part of November. It wasn't that, um, that like, two, three-day just bam, you know what I mean, where it's like the woods just came alive, and there was just deer running around, you know, recklessly, you know, chasing does through the woods. It wasn't anything like that. Right. Um, so, you know, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there and the shotgun season, as much as I hated it, I needed a break. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I was starting to get a little burned out, you know? Yeah. And I was getting frustrated and I was second guessing everything that I did. And, and I'm like, man, I should have just stayed in Kentucky. You know, I had no problem <laughs> killing deer there, you know? <laughs> boo hoo, boo hoo, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, like I'm going to go back to Kentucky, you know. But uh, no, but then. So did that know, property little... that property get hunted at all during shotgun season? No, no, the okay. outskirts did. Okay, so did uh, that help? That, did that help your property yeah. come? Okay, all right. It did. It did because as the shotgun season went on, I snuck in there one day to check trail cameras. I wanted to stay out of there altogether. You know what I mean? And just let that let all the deer kind of make that like a little sanctuary safe spot. Um, but I snuck in there one day and I checked trail cameras and I had a ton of deer movement back in that travel corridor where I, where I had been before and I had seen weight gear that before. So I was getting excited for that second season. Um, started moving all my trail cameras to food or travel corridors that directly led from bedding to food. Um, that's where I put all of my cameras focused everything just on that. And I thought, well, if it's going to happen late season, it's going to happen in one of those locations. You know what I mean? Maybe right. we're going to now let's go back to field edges. You know, let's, let's try field edges again. And uh, like I said, I had to cut corn granted. It's been pretty picked over. Um, but there was still, there was still something there, you know, for them, for them to eat. And then of course there was some cut bean fields and stuff like that. But, um, we had that uh, first couple of days of second season where it dropped down to like negative 15, negative five degrees and stuff like that. So I was out there still bow in hand, uh, no, no muzzle loader for me. And I'm back out there with a bow in hand. Very first day I shoot a doe that morning Yep. and I'm like, all right, things are picking up. You know, I go back in the second day and, um, that's when I was able to shoot the buck that I, that I just shot. Now, did you have any encounters or see the buck that you all, you ended up shooting, um, this year or was it kind of a, a buck that maybe got displaced during the shotgun season? Um, I had, I never had a trail camera picture of that deer in the, during velvet. Um, I had a couple of trail camera pictures of him, but I do think he is a deer that got pushed onto the property in shotgun season. Cause that's when I got pictures of him was during shotgun season. Okay. Now 
when you, after shotgun season, did your, you know, did your goal or your criteria for what you were going to shoot change for late season? Um, I mean, obviously after seeing some of the bucks and, and living in Iowa and, and knowing guys from Iowa and seeing the deer that they've harvested over the years. Sure. I went into October 1st with the mindset of, you know, I want to shoot a giant. I want to shoot a giant and that's all I'm going to shoot is a giant. And after hunting through the season, uh, I still told myself, and, I, and I've always felt this way, um, I want to shoot mature deer. Right. You know, that's, that's my number one goal, shoot a mature deer. And then there's other variables that kind of go into that as well. A mature deer with a big rack. Oh yeah, that's a plus. Um, but also managing deer as well. And the deer that I ultimately shot is is more of a management buck for that property. Am I still tickled to death with the deer? It, very much so. Love the deer. Uh, it was it got my heart pumping. It was a cool encounter to have with the deer. And but that deer that I ended up shooting when I even when I got a trail camera picture of him, I thought, man, he's just got a ton of mass but he's a really tight rack deer mm-hmm. and he was definitely mature. Uh, you know, he was it, it definitely a four-year-old deer, but he was really worn down, you know, from the rut hips and stuff. You know, you could see big hip bones on him and stuff like that. And so I knew he was mature deer and, and, um, I thought, well, maybe it's just not in my cards to, to shoot a 200 incher. <laughs> you know, as it's in a lot of our cards, you know what I mean? Right, right. Uh, those don't come every day. So, um, yeah, I, I thought, well, maybe I'm not going to kill one of these big giants. One of my hit list bucks, um, when I got that text message is when I was climbing up the tree that day. So I'm like, oh, now I'm hunting a deer that doesn't even live anymore, you know? Right. Um, but when that deer came in, like I said, my first thought was, oh, this is a cool deer. And then I put binocs on him and I started looking at him and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's that really, really massive, you know, nine pointer that almost looks like he doesn't belong. You know, a lot of the deer that I've got trail camera pictures of, a lot of these three-year-olds and four-year-olds that I had passed through the season um, are a lot, they're a bigger deer than he is. I mean, they would score better, but they also have a lot more potential than he did right. as well. Um, they could be really, really great deer, you know, in years to come. And like I said, they weren't mature. They were three-year-olds. So, um, that's why I passed, you know, passed those deer. And like I said, with, uh, with him presenting the opportunity that he did, and like I said, it was getting late season. Um, yeah, I'm a hillbilly from Kentucky. I like venison as yep. well. So, uh, it's not all about the deer and what they're, you know, what they score. I like the conservation efforts and, the ability to management and to be honest with you, it is kind of funny too, to look at the buck that I shot and to say, that's a management buck for Iowa. You know what I mean? Um, so it's nice to have those options like that. Right. So now you've had not a, your for, first full year, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's still late season. You got a landowner's tag. You, yep. 
I mean, you can still get out there and hunt. Um, do you, I'm going to skip that for now, but, and uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to, you know, talk a little bit about late season or uh, not necessarily uh-huh. late season, but next season. What, sure. I mean, after you, after you've almost had a full year under, under your belt here in Iowa, what are your, mm-hmm. what are your goals and expectations for 2017? So, you know, and I've already started looking at next year a lot. Um, I can't wait for shed season. I cannot wait because that to me is that last piece of a, of an annual puzzle that I need, uh, that last little bit of information I need going into 2017, 2017's plans. Uh, I'm expanding my food plots here at my property. Um, which by the way, I do have a pretty good buck showing up on my personal property here, uh, that I'm going to try to make a play. Uh, hopefully I can capitalize on him here late season, but, um, I'm going to make my food plots here a lot bigger. Um, I'm going to do some stuff with some Egyptian wheat, create some barriers. Um, I don't have bad neighbors, but I have neighbors that some neighbors that live kind of close. So I want to try to create a little more secluded, you know, food plot area. Um, I've seen some deer activity where it seems like they're a little hesitant to come into the food plots until after dark, but I've, I'll watch them in staging areas, you know, in the timber and they're just standing there just waiting for it to get dark. And then they come into the food plots. So I'm going to try some things to try to make the deer come into the food plots, um, a little earlier in daylight hours and shed season. Um, and like I said, from the things I learned this year, uh, going into next year, it's, I would like to think it's going to help me, (laughs) you know? Um, but like I said, I'm going to definitely next season be a little more gentle, like I might be real aggressive. If I've got a daylight targetable deer, patternable deer early season, I might be aggressive and try to go in after him. But then I see myself pulling back out and just waiting and, and keeping pressure off that property. Yep. Well, sounds like you got a plan for 2017. Uh, congrats on the buck you shot this year. And Thank uh, thanks for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast, man. I appreciate it. Dude, anytime, brother. Like I said, this is uh, spending an hour with you on the phone doing this is no different than an hour that we spent on the phone two <laughs> days ago. You know what I mean? But right, right. I, li- I like talking deer hunting with you, Dan. So I appreciate you having me on here, bro. Now, um, go ahead. And if people want to find out more about your photography or Arrow mm-hmm. Wild Company, where should we send them? Um, so Facebook, Arrow Wild Co. Uh, we have a Facebook page. And there's also an Instagram page for that. And then me personally, I have Johnny Utah Mulligan on Instagram. Um, and I try to post up pictures of cool stuff with hunting and, and with the family and, and that kind of thing. Um, kind of an open book. I think I'm starting to get involved in the Snapchat a little bit. I haven't really done much with the Twitter, but I'm on, I'm on the <laughs> Facebook and the Instagram. Oh, the Snapchat. All right, man. Well, you take care, and uh, I'll see you at the ATA show. Okay, sounds good. Take care, Dan. Huge shout-out to John. Thanks for coming on the show. Huge shout-out to you, the listener. Thank you for a great 2016. Another huge shout-out to Deer Lab and Exodus. Thank you guys very much for your support of the show. 
2016, you old son of a bitch, I hope I never see you again. In 2017, I'm coming to kick your ass. If you guys are in a tree, wear your damn safety harness. And here's to a good year.